0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert. I'm Dak Shepard. I'm joined by Monica Padman. Hello. This edition of Experts on Expert is a particularly fun one for me.
1: A live show.
0: It was a live show, but with a friend, an actual friend from college. uh, Jason DeLeon and I were in an archaeology class together at UCLA some 20 years ago. Uh, We had other classes together, but yeah, he and I were best buddies in college, and he has now grown up to be a very impressive anthropologist. He researches theories of violence, materiality, Latin American migration, photoethnography, forensic science, and archaeology of the contemporary. He directs the Undocumented Migration Project, a long-term study of clandestine border crossings that uses a combination of ethnographic, archaeological, visual, and forensic approaches to understand this phenomena in a variety of geographic contexts. He also won the MacArthur Fellowship, which is very esteemed, Monica. Incredibly exclusive. He also has a book right now called The Land of Open Graves. We appropriately recorded this live at UCLA in front of a bunch of students, and it was quite a blast. Little reminder, tomorrow tickets go on sale for the HistoryCon Armchair Expert Live from Los Angeles at the Pasadena Convention Center. Tickets go on sale at 10 a.m. L.A. time tomorrow. You can visit www.armchairexpertpod.com for a ticket link. Please enjoy my old drinking buddy, Jason Delion. We are supported by Sleep Number... Sleep is so important for your overall health and well-being, and if you don't get enough of it, there could be some serious negative impacts. So how do you make sure you get some quality rest? Well, it starts with a good mattress like the Sleep Number Smart Bed. It was designed for your one-of-a-kind, ever-evolving sleep needs so you can take your sleep to the next level. Boy, I got to tell you, having just traveled back and forth to Indian and skipped 12 time zones, I get reminded of how absolutely imperative good sleep oh, is. Oh,
1: it's so necessary. You
0: cannot even feel like a human being you if can't. you're not. <laughs> <laughs> the best part about Sleep Number is you can easily adjust your firmness. And while you sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds automatically respond and adjust to your movements throughout the night. It's heaven. And if you want to improve your health and well-being, Sleep Number is where you should start. Sleep Number Smart Beds can show your ideal sleep and wake-up schedule and the best times for activity. Like working out and winding down. Sleep next level with a sleep number smart bed. It's the only bed that lets you adjust each side to your ideal firmness and comfort, your sleep number setting. Only at sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. Who wants to fuss with inserting a card into a reader? Or worse, into a skimmer where your card information can be stolen.
1: I wouldn't be here without Apple Pay. You wouldn't. No, none of the things I'm wearing.
0: You'd be here, skincare, but we'd have a lawsuit against you.
1: Perhaps. I just, I, I use it 14 times a day. And if it's not an option on what I'm buying, I often don't buy it.
0: Exact same. I'll fill a cart. I see they don't have Apple Pay. I'm out of there.
1: I know. And remember how last year on Halloween I was going to go as Apple Pay?
0: Yes, I do remember.
1: I had to scrap it last minute because I didn't plan ahead, but I still think it's a great costume. Yeah,
0: earmark it for a lady. I Halloween. will. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. He's an Jason, please get comfortable. Brought my hat in case it gets windy. I, I, I that this sign says I helped you get sober. You just made my entire night. Six months. Congratulations. That's awesome. So, Jason, um, we have not seen each other. On the way here, I was like, it'll be 20 years coming up that I graduated, which is alarming. And then so 19 for you.
2: Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think the last time I saw you, you were like, I can't hang out with you anymore. You're too much of an enabler. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm trying to like do shit with my life. And so we're not good together.
0: Well, you know, I gave a lot of thought to our past. And I was like, the truth is, I just didn't have your constitution. So you could somehow, Delion could drink until 5 a.m. And then he would show up where he had to be at 6 a.m. Sweating booze. Barely coherent, but he had one of these smiles that'll get you out of prison, and all the professors loved him. They're like, oh, "Sit over there." I mean, geez, you smell, but we love you. But you, you just have that constitution, don't you? Not anymore. Okay, yeah. it's gone away. I, yeah, I wish it's gone the way of the dodo. It kind of has. Foster's yeah. Island principle? Are oh you boy. blown away?
1: <laughs> it starts now. It starts the now. Bragging. By the way,
0: I'm also going to be citing a lot of anthro that I've both corrupted in my own memory and is definitely obsolete by now.
2: So. Prepare to cringe a lot. I have tenure now. I don't read anything anymore. Oh, so, good.
1: Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. Uh-oh.
0: <laughs> Literally, the first question I wanted to ask you was, are you tenured? Because I want to know what stories I can bring up. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're good to go. Oh, yeah, we're good. We're good. Okay. Right. <laughs> Buckle up. You're from Long Beach, right? Yep. That's right. LBC. Oh, oh, wow. You and Snoop, two most famous. Warren G. Warren G. Uh Sublime. Oh, yeah, sublime. But were you raised just by mom? Yep. Yeah. When did dad leave? Oh. Uh, See, it's going to be like that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, my parents got divorced in 85. And then so I lived with dad for three kind of horrible years. Uh huh. And then I ran away. Okay, that seems to be the pattern for dads, huh? Yeah. Back in the 80s. Yeah. What ages did you live with them? Third through fifth. Grade. Did that's when I started going to therapy, basically. Was, yeah, <laughs> literally. Oh, really? Yeah, the, the school psychologist was like, mm, mm. you're here every day. <laughs> um, my dad wasn't really around. Okay. So I was like a latchkey kid. I spent a lot of time at home alone, and then he worked nights. And uh. so I would be at home at, you know, by myself until the morning kind of thing.
0: Now, how old were you when you got interested in punk rock? Because I think that's really what happened. You and I were in a class together. I was like, this guy has a suspicious amount of tattoos for a student here. Now I think they're ubiquitous, but in 99, I think they were, they were still, you were out on a limb a little bit.
2: A little bit, I think. And I think it was all about intensity, mm. right? Like, how far can we push it? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think people who were pushing things in a certain direction gravitate towards other people who were, you know, yeah. either enablers or, or who were like, fuck it, let's do it.
0: Either a uh, class or fellow scumbags. One of the two. Yeah. What age did you start getting interested in music and playing
2: punk rock? You know, I started listening like pretty intensely to music probably around nine or ten because I was home alone all the time, and my parents had huge record collections. And so I would just play a shit ton of records, and you know, into Chuck Berry, Creedence, that kind of stuff. And then puberty hits, and then it was like heavy metal, and then heavy metal leading into like grunge, and then yeah. grunge leading me to to punk rock. Yeah. So probably seriously getting into music around fourteen.
0: Okay and now uh, you recently posted a picture of yourself in high school and there's a lot of things going on in the photos. <laughs> there's a lot of clues to work with to construct an idea of what you were like in high school. First of all you have a mohawk but you also have braces yeah. <laughs> and so I said what a, what a mixed message here. It's like fuck societal yeah. norms
2: yeah. and oh. I want my teeth to be straight as hell. <laughs> But that picture, I'm also in a tuxedo in that picture. You sure are. Because when I was in high school, I went to this really diverse high school, Wilson High School, and Wilson. And people were getting pissed at homecoming. They were like, every year at homecoming, it's a white homecoming king and queen, yeah. even though we're like 60% people of color in the school. Yeah. So they decided that like my senior year, that they were going to have international ambassadors for every ethnic group. Oh, um, wow. And so they couldn't find someone who was... Pacific Islander okay. who had the GPA to do it, and then someone heard that I was half Filipino, and they were like, Hey, will you come and be close our, enough? You know, wow. and, you know, and I was like, All right, sure. What, what <laughs> do I gotta, you know, I gotta wear a tuxedo? Like, okay, fine.
0: Well, if again, here we go with my memory, which is probably in error, but weren't all the um, Pacific Islanders they did paddle from the Philippines? No, <laughs> someone in here will be able to correct me. Here's, what, so I, here's what I remember learning. You're so embarrassed yes, for me. I'm so
1: embarrassed.
0: <laughs> okay, here's what I remember learning. Which is sure deeply flawed. Oh, yay, yay. But the people that colonized that chain of islands, Samoa, Tonga, all that, they didn't sail there; they rowed there, and that was a long-ass voyage. So they did a basically an artificial natural selection where they picked all the biggest, heaviest guys that could <laughs> row for a very long time and have some fat reserves, and they deployed them. And that's why Samoans are so big. That's what I learned. Which is that you just told the Moana story, I think. What <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, you're right. That's where I got that from. <laughs> so, anyways, I'm just saying, you were pre- on, on terra firma with this claim of being a Pacific yeah. Islander. You're like the original Pacific uh, Islander. But I grew it's up. It's not true, did someone say? It's not true. Malaysia? We do agree they rode to Tonga, no? Okay, whatever. Monica will fact check this. Um, <laughs> So they, they needed someone who could represent the, the Pacific.
2: But my problem was I grew up, so I was a military brat. I moved, lived all over the world. And I was always like the only brown student. And people uh-huh. would be like, well, what are you? And I would say, well, my dad's Mexican. My mom's Filipino. My mom says I'm Mexipino. Uh-huh. And, and people would say like, that's not a real fucking thing. You're, you're brown. You've got a last name, De Leon. You're Mexican. Uh-huh. So I was like, it was kind of forced on me for a long time. And so by the time someone asked me in high school, like, oh, yeah, you also have Filipino. And I was like, well, yeah, but... Nobody seems to recognize that until right now, <laughs> oh, and I got right. I, and now I got to take a goddamn picture. To, you know, um, I love my Filipino roots, but I feel like I spent when I, mean, I grew up in South Texas too. So I spent a lot of time around people who were like, "What the is the Philippines?"
0: Um, yeah, so. yeah, they didn't know about them rowing anywhere. No, like I did. Nobody does. Yeah, no. yeah nobody. Apparently, nobody does. <laughs> But so you ended up being like a prom king or, or, a, or a squire or something, right? Some shit like that, yeah. yeah that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> so can I ask you, having spent time in Texas and whatnot, was it a relief to land in Long Beach? Did you feel like, oh, there's obviously there's a much bigger Latino contingent in Long Beach than, say, Michigan or other parts sure. of the country, right? Was it at all okay. like, oh,
2: okay. Growing up in Long Beach, it really got me like... I thought the world was that diverse. You always had the Cambodian friend and a yeah. Samoan friend. It was a huge gay community when I was growing up. So all that stuff I thought was just totally normal. Right. And it wasn't until like, I went on tour as a, as a teenager, like the deep south and being like, oh shit, it's actually, the world doesn't look like Long Beach. Um, yeah. But I think you know, growing up there it really kind of clued me into diversity in a way that I wouldn't have gotten in a lot of, especially even in other parts of LA. Yeah, totally. Oh, people think I'm the gardener where I live. I mean, I'm always <laughs> like, so, so, yeah. Or I'm like, I don't, I mean, you know, there's like few people of color where I live in my neighborhood. And so I, I always think like, you know, you see like an African-American person, like, oh, he must be either a hip-hop artist or an athlete. Oh, sure. When they see me, I'm not sure what they think. I'm either the gardener, because <laughs> right, I see right. lots of brown people in my neighborhood. They're, they're gardening yeah. or cleaning the pool. And then I always wonder what people think it is that I'm, yeah, that.
0: I'm trying to think what I am back in when I used to be um, unevolved and a stereotyper. I'm trying to think what I would
1: <laughs> back when rodeo star,
0: <laughs> yeah, rodeo huge star. rodeo star, uh, jockey, <laughs> <laughs> famous, famous jockey. Um, so, you get into punk rock, and here's why I bring up punk rock because I'm wondering why you majored in anthropology. Like, did you come here first of all? Did, did you come from high school straight here? Yeah, okay, so you had much better grades in high school than I did. Yeah, I could have never got. <laughs> Could have never got in here, although I think I graduated with higher honors than you, so whatever. It was all sorted out in the end. Uh, It's true. I guess I just needed to be challenged. Yeah. yeah. Um, Did you come here
2: knowing you were going to major in anthro? Yep. I was a declared anthro major. Oh, really? And I I lasted like five weeks, and I dropped out and went home and lived in my mom's garage. Oh,
0: you came and then left?
2: Oh, yeah. Twice. Twice? Yeah. I didn't realize they had like a sabbatical policy. Oh, my God. Is it like Stanford? You can just... Skip out for a long time and and then just pay some money and (laughs) yeah you know no I lasted five weeks I failed intro to archaeology really oh yeah well this is an encouraging story
1: yeah it is all of you could have a MacArthur (laughs) grant at some point
2: (laughs) why did you want to do anthro because I wanted to be an archaeologist
0: you did Uh, yeah based on
2: Indiana Jones oh yeah Indiana
0: Jones that has to be responsible for a a significant percentage of archaeology majors absolutely
2: my generation our generation people I mean that was our kind of first exposure to to the discipline.
0: Yeah, because there's no Star Wars degree. Right. You can't like be yeah. Han Solo or no. something, so that's off the table. So you go next to him, oh, okay, it'd be Indiana Jones. I think what really drew me to it was, as someone who was obsessed with the punk rock scene, who was questioning, like, oh, all this stuff we're inheriting. Like, do we have to do this stuff? Is this, like, does everyone do this? All these rules and customs I'm I'm just kind of inheriting from my family and my town. Is that the only option and I think maybe having this intro class where I was like oh no there's a bazillion ways to live on planet earth and that is so encouraging to me and I think it was kind of it's it stemmed out of my skepticism about our own culture in some way but now I find out we don't share that at no, all in common. But,
2: but we do but we'd know but I say we, we do share that because I came in I wanted to be an archaeologist I wanted to be Indiana Jones, and then I realized how fucking boring archaeology is. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I love it. Someone has a PhD in archaeology, but it was not what I wanted to kind of do. Yeah. Um, but I really got excited about cultural anthropology as a student at UCLA, because um, we were in that class with Connerly Casey. The witchcraft one? Either witchcraft or genocide or deviance and abnormality. One yeah, of those. yeah, 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 yeah. And that one, I was like, well, shit. Like, now we're talking. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think we really bonded over that. Well, I tell, I say this
0: all the time that the teacher had been possessed by a spirit at some point in sub Saharan Africa, which prior to me hearing that, I'd be like, you know, there's no such thing. I don't know what to tell you. But here's this person I trusted truly, yeah. I loved her. And, and I believed that her experience was such that she got yeah. possessed by a spirit and then yeah. was a shaman relieved her of that ailment, if I recall. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's the power of culture because she entered that not necessarily believing in it in herself. And then all of a sudden it was real. Yeah. I find that very
2: fascinating. That was an amazing class.
0: So when I when we met in, our, maybe we didn't meet there, but when we had that archaeology class, so we, we went and dug up at Stunt Ranch and... I had the fantasy that we were going to explore with, like, dynamite and pickaxes. I thought for sure within a week or two, we'd discover the jade mask yeah. or a hidden city or something. And we, didn't, then- we didn't find shit.
1: <laughs>
2: we yeah. didn't find
0: a thing! And more than that, you start to know something stinks when you get there and they hand you a paintbrush. You're <laughs> like, what the hell am I going to do with a paintbrush? I'm like, well, you're going to go down two centimeters and make in situ readings yeah. of everything. And I was like, this can't be archaeology. It was a real big wake-up call for me. I was like, this is off the table. And then our obsession during that class was we had been taught that the Chumash used to use man root to stupefy the fish in small streams. Because it, too, is a hallucinogenic... And Deleon and I spent a good portion of our time searching for man root at Stunt, oh my God, yeah,
2: stunt yeah. Ranch. And asking questions like, so if one were to take this in a tea,
1: <laughs> what would be the...
2: And Tom Wake was like, you guys are fucking... You guys are going to kill yourselves. This is poison. And they're like, like what's the average dose yeah. for a chew mash? Yeah. Like to see some shit, but
0: not meet God. Yeah. What is that? If you're like if you're like 59 what's the dosage <laughs> <laughs> or 62 <laughs> yeah but boy did we have so much fun up there we my obsession during that dig was we came across a, a rattlesnake at one point yeah. remember that walking yeah. through the field some gal was like ah yeah. and once that happened i was like oh i better take this mountain lion you know warning serious <laughs> cuz we've already come across a rattlesnake and so a good chunk of my day was practicing my defense against a mountain lion was offer the bait, (laughs) and then trawl to the neck. It was like, boom, grab it, and then boom. I didn't learn anything about archaeology (laughs) in that whole time. It was just mountain lions, man root, rattlesnakes. And then often, the class was on Friday, and we were up there for, I think, like four hours. No, the whole day. The whole day, okay. Then we go down to the Saddle Ranch bar, down there in uh, Calabasas, and just unwind from a long day of digging. (laughs) Yeah. Now we parted ways in, in 2000.
2: I graduated with a little bit better of a GPA than you managed. Yeah. And, um, but I will say too that, I, you know, one of the things we also bonded over was you telling me you were like, I didn't have, I never had the college experience. I transferred from community college. I never had a college buddy. I <laughs> didn't um, Yeah. And so you were really committed to like having a college buddy. Extremely yeah. committed. And so I was there to like, I was there for you for that.
0: And it happened Aww. at the perfect time. Yeah. It was my last semester at yeah. UCLA, and then I met you and Alex, yep. and we ju- I just... We, we were just making condensed up for, four
2: years into a quarter. <laughs> made, <laughs>
0: made up for lost time. Oh, that was the highlight. Now, we parted ways, and then you... Again, I, I wonder if, in that moment, I think if you'd asked any of our classmates who here will be employed at some point later down the road. <laughs> we're definitely no. numbers like 30 oh, and 31 yeah. for the guests, yeah. right? Very unlikely. And over the years... I guess I would follow you on like the rudimentary versions of social media or whatnot, and i go, Oh, that's cool. He's going to graduate school. And then of course you did, you ended up going to Penn State. Um, and getting <laughs> a you went to Penn State and then got a, a a PhD in archaeology. And I remember being so excited for you and just thinking, God, he did it. He really he did it. Did you did you blow your own mind with having seen that all the way through? Especially if you had quit. Why did you quit the first time? I wanted
2: to be in a, in a band. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to play music. Yeah. And I didn't like my classes, too. I mean, they weren't, they, they weren't kind of inspiring at the time, I think. Yeah. And so I needed to go on a vision quest to right. come back.
0: I just want to say, um, I'm on the record as being a recovering addict. I've been to a few crack houses in my life. <laughs> I have never been to a place as dirty as Jason's yeah. the house that he lived in with his band. In Westwood. Yeah. yeah. I also want to mention that today I was reading about you. I was like, what was the name of his band? And then it... Even though I knew the name of the band back then, I didn't put together the cleverness of it till just today. The band was called Youth in Asia.
1: Youth Oh, I love Euthanasia. it. Youth in Asia. Yeah, that's yeah. great.
0: Twenty years later, I got it.
1: <laughs>
0: I took it at face value.
1: Is it spelled Young Eve People in yeah. Asia?
0: Paddling <laughs> east of Pakistan.
1: Yeah, everyone's included. Yeah, sure.
0: Few hundred million
1: uh-huh. youths
0: in, in Asia.
1: I like it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to transition to some serious stuff, because I actually, although I'm quite aware of what you've done, I'm not entirely o- aware of what you've done. Before even we even get into it, when I knew we would talk about it, I thought, Do you find it hard to have an apolitical conversation about what you study when you're talking about migration or emigration or immigration? I think as soon as Americans hear the word immigration, they immediately connect to a a party. Unlike if you made some discovery of bird feathers from the Jurassic period on a dinosaur, you don't go like, Ronald Reagan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's some Obama data right there. Uh, You don't have any association with other data like that. So I'm just wondering, I'm curious... How just even deciding to study this has been either mired in politics or even when you want to present your, your findings um, trying to escape that lens? Or or is it baked in and should it be
2: seen as a political endeavor? Well, I, I think in the beginning I thought about it as, as an apolitical endeavor. I was like, I'm an archaeologist, I'm an anthropologist, I'm studying this thing from a scientific perspective and I'm doing it from a kind of apolitical stance. I'm doing it just to document and to better understand And I remember the first time I said that to a a colleague of my friend of mine, and she said to me, wow, you're so full of shit. That must, (laughs) you know, that must make you feel better and and sleep at night by thinking that this is kind of an apolitical endeavor, Uh you know. And I had to kind of get up to speed about all anthropology is political, right? Mm. The the decisions that you make to study something, that's a political decision. Mm. Even if you decide to study something like, you know, what we ate in the past, you know, 5,000 years ago, I think that's a political decision. How so? Because you're choosing to either engage or not engage with certain topics. So, you know, people who study like subsistence in in the past, how that relates to something like inequality, right? So, not everybody ate equal food in in the past. So, even when it's not kind of up front, I think it's still it's still all very much political. The rabbit holes we go down, I think, tell a lot about our own politics.
0: Well, let's just start with the fact that you are half. Mexican, half Filipino, was that part of why you were even interested in that? Like, what what was the spark that you were like, that's, because if you recall, remember, if I was going to pursue anthropology, it was mm-hmm. just going to be to live with the Hells Angels. Do you yeah, remember yeah. that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to do an ethnography on yeah. the Hells Angels, for obvious reasons. Oh, yeah. So I'm wondering, huh. I guess your own background, did that play into it, or did something else spark your interest? in
2: No, I think what really sparked it was... Working in Mexico on archaeological excavations, where I'm out in the middle of nowhere with you know working class women and men who are getting paid to dig ditches alongside these archaeologists, and I start hearing their, their stories about migration and about border crossings and the horrible things that had happened to them. It was those stories that really kind of inspired me. You know, thinking like I've become very close with this individual, he's just told me a horrible story about what has happened to him, and I want to better understand that. And so initially, it was it was that interest in those folks. But I mean, I think my own background. Allows me certain access to particular types of people and particular types of stories, yeah, but it was the first time I think you know within academia, being a brown person was always you know considered to be you know not an asset, you know it's like something to kind of an impediment to overcome, sure, I'm like, happy just to be at the table, kind of thing,, yeah, yeah. but it wasn't when I realized like, oh well, my own background allows me a certain type of access. Then it started to feel really empowering and yeah. then and then all of a sudden, I wasn't having to explain away my background, but really to say. You know, I want to write about about immigration and about border crossings, and I have a personal connection to these issues, which then I think facilitates the the work. Yeah. But I didn't start out like, oh, I'm like, you know, because if you remember, I mean, I was a super apolitical person. Yeah. As a student.
0: And I guess the reason I even bring up the apolitical thing is because unfortunately, currently at least – Soon as something is under the paradigm or left or right, that means you immediately lose 50% of the ears. Yep. And so, that therein lies the trouble. Like, sure. I, I fear that you could have some breakthrough discovery and then just it would fall mute on half of the population because it is framed as a political thing, but also recognize it's a cop out to say it's not a political thing. Sure. So, we'll see both sides. And too. I really
2: am trying to. Get. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to preach to the choir. I right. have sort of no interest in that. So, you know, through all the different kinds of public outreach sorts of things that we're doing, the exhibition work, documentary film, trying to write more accessibly, trying to write stories that are, they're about migrants, they're about immigration, but they're really leading with the stories about individuals. So people can pick it up and go, well, do I connect with this character yeah. who happens to be a migrant, happens to be an immigrant? That's sort of my approach. And there are some people who just, you mentioned immigration and then there's nothing you can do to connect with those folks. Right, right, um, the wall goes yeah. immediately up. But figuratively
0: and, and metaphorically.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, uh,
0: No, wall joke, <laughs> no? <laughs> uh, no one likes it? <laughs> it was too much? Um, how was looking at this critical issue through the archeological lens different from how it had been looked at through other disciplines or in the media?
2: most archaeology, right, when you hear the word archaeology, people think about 10,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there'd been very few projects that were looking at contemporary materials. But as far as I'm concerned, archaeologist means a study of the past um, through material remains. But the past could be this morning, last week. It doesn't have to be 5,000 years ago. And so when I started thinking about the things that border crossers leave behind and how I can use archaeology to understand that, that seemed to me like a natural kind of part of this whole thing. But people were like, what the hell is this? You know, yeah. that you know, and either arguing that's not archaeology or oh shit, maybe this actually is an interesting way to kind of think about the relevance of archaeology to contemporary kinds of issues.
0: So it, what were the first steps? Like you start what? You go down there and you start just walking the route that people walk and finding things like what, what? Yeah, basically.
2: That's where it starts. I make some phone calls, I'm trying to get down to Arizona you know, I was looking at stuff on the internet, and, pe- and most of what I was finding on the internet were people who were talking about you know, migrant trash in the desert, look at these kind of filthy invaders kind of thing. Yeah. And so I started looking at these pictures of water bottles and backpacks. They're
0: conveniently environmentalists in that moment. Oh, yeah. Suddenly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> suddenly it's like, you know, yeah. Sierra Club. Um, but, <laughs> but
2: I was like, oh, shit, there's all this stuff out there. So I started making phone calls. found someone who, this guy named, named Bob Key, who does a lot of humanitarian work in the desert and felt sorry for me and said, I'll take you out in the desert and show you some stuff. Uh-huh. And... I went out, started walking around the desert and just seeing all this stuff and was like, well, this is archaeology. Can't we, let's just document it. Let's get the, the map out. Let's start bagging stuff and tagging it and, and collecting it and seeing what we can do from an archaeological lens.
0: Yeah. And so as you start compiling all this and mapping it, are you finding certain things that you realize like, oh, this is more profound than a water bottle or this is a real glimpse into what the experience
2: is like? You see different kinds of things. I think there's there's the personal stuff, right? The Bible, the love letters, the baby stuff that people that's always like really difficult. Um, yeah. And but like I, dolls. Oh yeah, diaper bags, yeah. that kind of stuff. You know, baby shoes. You know, you'll see things like a pair of baby shoes with with something written on it. You know, someone saying goodbye to this kid who's getting ready to migrate, kind of thing. Um, those in, initially were like the most powerful kinds of things. But then after a while, you know, all the water bottles. I mean, those things really hit me because you know that you know someone was relying on this one gallon of water to survive. And um, I have a deep appreciation for all the materials now. I mean, not just the, the stuff that really, uh, that hits you emotionally, but I think everything, the, the food wrappers, the broken shoes, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And when you're out there, are you running into like these guys who have armed themselves and are like on the border? Are you running into
2: them? Not so much. No. When I was working, on the archaeological stuff, because that project really ran until about 2016, 2017. The place where I was working, there were not a lot of vigilantes out there. Part of it, because the place that I was working, vigilantes had killed a nine-year-old girl and her dad, like, the year I started working on this project. And so they had been kind of persona non grata in this region. But post-2016, I mean, they're sort of back in the, in the area where I work. So when did it
0: start? What year did you start going
2: 2009. So, and as you are, does, does any kind of...
0: Pattern emerge is there any kind of insight you gather by by looking at it that way and
2: documenting all the stuff Like does something become obvious to you that we're all missing you start to see how things evolve over time Like the types of technologies people are using so like initially people were using white water bottles And then they realize oh well the white reflects a lot of light It's easy to be spotted by the border patrol So then they start painting it with a with a marker or covering it with a black trash bag and then some enterprising person in northern Mexico says, let's make black water bottles to sell to these migrants. And so you can kind of see this stuff over, over the course of just a couple of years. Yeah. And, and these are patterns that I would ask migrants about, and they had, no, they had no idea. I would say, oh, the black water bottle, when did those show up? And they would say, oh, we've always had them. Yeah, and would yeah. be like, well, they weren't here last year, kind of thing. So yeah. you, you would see kind of that. You would see also larger patterns of, like, you can see the experience that people have based on the archaeological record over, over space, so close to the border, what are you throwing de- What are you leaving behind? You know, oh. twenty five miles north, what does the stuff look like? Right. So things are bloodier, things are broken, people are exhausted, they're losing they're losing their clothes because they can't carry it anymore. So you're able to see kind of certain patterns like that through the archaeological remains.
0: And would you ever go in deep into Mexico? Like so
2: Yeah, fifty percent of my time has been spent with migrants interviewing them about their experiences, you know, giving them cameras, having them photograph their experiences en route and then send me the photos, that kind of stuff. Oh, no
0: kidding. Yeah. So, how, how much of that have you gathered? Just
2: oh, a lot. Really, I, mean, I would. I mean, that's primarily what I do. Is that you is, am- is working with with living living people
0: and 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 give them the the tools as by much, which to as much as I can. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Stay tuned for more live show after this exciting commercial break. We are supported by the Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. For a start, the exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender 110's legendary capability lets you go further and do more, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Its durability, has been tested to the extreme it can handle your equipment too as the cargo capacity means more room for your gear explore with greater confidence with powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display an award-winning infotainment system and innovative camera technologies. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. We are supported by Smucker's Uncrustables. Oh, do I love these. I also love a food hack, and this is a good one. Check out Uncrustables, the best part of the sandwich. It's a round, crimped sandwich made with soft, pillowy bread filled with peanut butter and jelly. The best part is you simply freeze and thaw them. Pop them straight from the freezer into a lunchbox for less work on a busy morning. You'll find Smucker's Uncrustables in the freezer aisle. Learn more at Uncrustables.com. We are supported by Canva. Good presentations take time, or they used to, because now you have Canva to help you make amazing slides fast. I'm talking like seconds, thanks to the power of AI in Canva presentations. All you have to do is start with a prompt like a sales presentation for a tech company, then sit back and let Canva work its magic. It's incredible what AI is doing. I'm seeing all kinds of image generated. I call these architectural websites that it's all AI generated. It's just mind blowing what it comes up with.
1: You just tell it what you want and it'll do it.
0: Boom. It's a time saver and it's easy for any department to use. And it's great for companies of Any size, even Fortune 500 companies rely on Canva. Finish your work faster and generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. How do you deal with, I have to imagine inevitably, you meet someone down there, you give them this tool, you're gonna somehow connect and get that thing I would compare it, I guess, to my mom working in foster care, which is like, it has to be painful to not be, you don't don't have the bandwidth or capacity probably to help all the people you've connected with. Like, what is that part of the job like?
2: That's the hardest part. I mean, I mean, I was asked the other day, like, what is it that drives kind of this work? And I think for me, it's the connections I make with people that I'm working with, like this deep commitment. And this is part of like maybe coming from a broken home, maybe not having a lot of family where I've looked towards anthropology as a way to create you know, kinship. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm always trying to create kinship with these people that I work with. And it's really difficult to love someone and be committed to them and then to be like, okay, have fun in the desert, send me these photos kind of thing. Yeah, That's a really brutal part of the process.
0: Or if they then make it here, don't you feel kind of obligated to like help in some way once they're here?
2: Oh, I mean, I'm connected to the, all the folks I really write about... Even after the, the first book came out, I'm still really connected to them and, you know, helping out. And, you know, I have a, one of the guys I write about in the first book who I call Memo. I joke that he's on the MacArthur health plan because that's, I mean, that money is paying for a lot of his his medical bills. Uh huh. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's a long commitment. And, and that book came out five years ago.
0: Yeah. I think one of the reasons the topic in general is so daunting is like these Bloom Empathy experiments where it's like you look at one kid and you're very willing to help a photo of one kid in need you add like a sister or brother and it kind of goes down a little bit and then it gets into this predictable pattern where it's like you had 50 kids and people are like i i don't know man i'm out no like so what is the the scale of the people
2: heading north i mean it's too many to count i mean we're talking hundreds of thousands of people yearly Uh especially now coming from from central america so i'm working on a project right now for the last five years i've been working with smugglers so you know, what, with, what
0: would I would call a coyote? Is that yeah, what? yeah, yeah, okay. And so
2: people who are kind of on the edge, fringe kind of characters, not really sympathetic characters because they're doing all kinds of horrible stuff. Yeah, they live really short lives because they're wrapped up in all kinds of violence. And I've been really committed to those guys. You know, this other population that nobody cares about. Yet I'm I've connected to these to some of these folks in in I think really deep ways. And then now trying to write about them in a way that gets people to care about you know, that human cost, which is even more challenging. I mean, it's easy to, for most, I mean, I think you can make a sympathetic character sketch out of a migrant, um, but with people who are smuggling, it's a lot harder. And so part of what I'm trying to do really is to paint a human picture from that component of this, but people have a hard enough time feeling bad for, you know, babies in cages, and so now making this leap towards these, you know. the guys profiting in some manner from that. Yeah.
0: Do you see, uh, having now done this for 16 years or whatever, are there things that could be done? Because I guess from the outside, and I'll probably put my foot in my mouth, but, you know, it seems like there's a lot of sides to the equation. It's like, one, you have countries that people want to leave. So how how do you fix that? I guess I'm curious, what should we be doing differently, and what are some of the solutions?
2: I think we need a really big, beautiful wall. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and that'll I'll probably be quoted yeah. out of context on that one. <laughs> um Gilded in gold and with marble. (laughs) You know, I think I had a a British journalist ask me once, like, you know, and I won't do my terrible, I think yours might be worse than mine. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I won't won't do a a British accent. Um, How dare you? (laughs) But, you know, she, she asked me once, like, how would you fix this problem? What's comprehensive immigration reform look like? And I said, well, you've got to stop meddling with... Central American political systems, the U.S. interventionist policies have, have totally screwed over Central America for, for decades, you've also got to stop... Give me a
0: couple of examples of those.
2: I mean, we just, we put people in power in Central America that are going to kind of toe the line for the United States. Yeah. And we, and we consistently undermine kind of grassroots people kinds of political... Democratic process. Yeah, yeah. And so, and we've been doing that for forever. And we're really good at it. But so the kind of consistent undermining of Mexico's economy. I mean, this, this idea that NAFTA was somehow a really bad deal for the United States. NAFTA was a really great deal for certain capitalists in the United States and really screwed over Mexico in, in a lot of ways, forcing people to have to migrate. And you know, and of course we want them here because we'll pay them less money for work. All those kinds of things I think need to be fixed as part of, of immigration reform. And, but this journalist was like, well don't you think those are like those countries' problems? You know, And I think that's a lot of Americans think that, that that's also the case, like that Mexico is corrupt, it's having all these issues, Central America is, is, is having all these issues, and we think about it as, oh well, we've got to put this wall up to kind of solve these problems, even though we know that those problems are directly connected to the things that we do. And it's just an unpopular perspective for a lot of folks. I mean, I was at a Trump rally in Warren, Michigan in 2016, People are chanting build a wall before sure. before he even comes out. Comes out and it's says,
0: kinda like yelling Freebird at a yeah, Skinner concert. Yeah. yeah. Except it goes on for an hour, you know.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and he comes out and says, We're gonna build this wall and it's gonna save your jobs. And I'm like, people Are wanna, robots crossing the border? Yeah, yeah, right. You know? Oh my god, I, I wanna see that. Yeah. But, you know, and and he said something like, we're going to stop Mexico from stealing your jobs. And I'm like, as if Mexico is this powerhouse It just says, you know what, we need some more work for us. So give us these plants. And it's like, no, no, no. Um, But people have to see those connections, I think, to better understand what comprehensive immigration reform would actually look like.
0: Okay. So I'm now going to be forced to take some of the positions I don't hold. But I'm just going to bring up some concerns. So I think people are nervous that if it were just like, yeah, everyone come that somehow we would be completely buried in a bazillion people that we don't have services to help and sure. that that is a fear.
2: You're only getting you're getting people who are coming here to do jobs that Yeah,
0: that I, I always you know, think we're getting the best of the best. Like yeah. you know, I don't have yeah. it in me. I, I, I don't want to work I, that bad. Yeah. No. I'm the one you don't know yeah. want in this country. <laughs> I wouldn't fucking walk home to Los Feliz for a job. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so I mean it's nobody I think is saying open borders, let everybody come. right? People are talking about, if you want labor, yeah. which we do, then let's treat people with respect and allow them some dignity and be able to move freely, you know, yeah. monitor them, pay them a fair wage. Because we're, we're not going to have people who are going to want to work a lot of these jobs. And it's prohibitively expensive for us to hire Americans to pluck chickens or to you know, render cows, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, Pro- meat processing. Yeah. So, you know. I mean, I think that we have to understand that.
0: Well, there, there does seem to be a willful ignoring of how much of our economy is on the back of those oh. laborers, right? Yeah. Didn't Mississippi take some crazy stance at one point where they were trying to get rid of...
2: Well, Alabama had HB 56.
0: Alabama. And that one, they were... They were and it just totally backfired, oh, right? Oh, yeah. I mean... Yeah. I love that. So oh, tell yeah. people about that because I think people don't recognize... Like anyone who's screaming this, we're in California, which is the uh, fifth biggest economy in the world... You know, like it's on the backs of a lot of those people. Where clearly, that's a huge part of the economy oh, for sure. that is thriving. So what? Yeah, what happened in Alabama?
2: You know, they started policing the, these farms and these fields, and people were running away because they were afraid of getting deported. And then now you have all of these white farmers being like, "Who's going to pick all this fruit?" You know, fruit rotting on the vines. I mean, f- farms just ceasing to function. Yeah. And then struggling that. Okay, we, you know, the, the law goes away, and how do we bring these bring these folks back? Right.
0: They had to do a one eighty. Well, right. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty embarrassing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Hey, Mexico, um, (laughs) boy, we did not think this through. Uh, Because they're like, "Oh, we're going to hire high school kids to
2: like work the fields." Like, yeah, right. I mean,
0: (laughs) I was the last generation of kids who worked in fields. I detassled corn in Indiana, and this was in '87, and the transition was happening. Like, school buses would arrive, and it'd be a bunch of us young white kids and hillbillies, really, and then another bus of. Migrant laborers, and then as the years went on, now there's just, yeah, there's no white kids on buses no. doing that job. <laughs> yeah. I think they make videos on YouTube for, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for an occupation now. Same I think that's what they transitioned into. <laughs> I guess my argument I try to make is like, wouldn't it be cheaper if, the, if it's a fiscal concern people have, knowing the, the cost of patrolling the border and all this stuff, wouldn't would it be fiscally responsible to try to help in those situations so people
2: w- weren't feeling the need to leave? under threat of violence you would think yeah it seems cheaper it, and we keep cutting aid to these countries saying stop stop coming we're going to cut off your aid and it's like well shit now you've just destabilized these countries even more of course people are going to be leaving uh, at, in higher numbers yeah but you also have to keep in mind that the border industrial complex is a huge money maker and so these trillions of dollars that are getting spent people are putting that in their pockets and so there are people who like to keep the system kind of in place the way that it is
0: yeah a lot of people are profiting. Oh yeah, like because the, the
2: war on drugs has become unpopular. So Now the war on immigrants, detention centers, border security—that's that's a huge, huge moneymaker for a lot of people. Yeah. Have you been threatened at all? You know, like the hate mail, that kind well, of stuff. Oh, a little light
0: hate mail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: the, the creepy ones are when they write you a physical letter. Oh yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's, yeah.
0: You know, if you, someone writes you a letter. Period. It's You're, scary. Like yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why are? You, have you time traveled? Yeah. Why are you doing this? <laughs> now the undocumented migrant project. Do you have friends you want to give shouts out to that helped you?
2: Yeah, well, my my team is here. Austin Shipman, who was our project manager. And then um, Nicole Smith, of Michigander, a uh-huh. um, former student of mine from University of Michigan, who moved to L.A. Yeah. to work on the good project. Good folks, good yep. folks. Yeah. And then Gabe, Gabe Cantor, Angelino, who was also a Michigan student, who moved back to L.A. to work on this project with me.
0: So. The express goal is a long-term anthropological study of clandestine migration between Latin America and the United States that uses a combination of ethnographic, visual, archaeological, and forensic approaches to understand this violent social process. So we touched on the archaeological aspect. What's the forensic aspect?
2: You know, trying to understand what happens to migrants who die out in the Arizona desert. Because people are dying in the middle of nowhere and we struggle to get a good count on those because people aren't recovering the bodies. When we began the project, we didn't know really how long it took for a body to decompose. And so we started running forensic experiments using pigs as proxies for human bodies. So, you know, we dress them up in clothes that migrants would wear. We put them in different contexts and then monitor them with with trail cameras to see, okay, when do scavengers show up? How quickly do do bodies get get ripped apart? That kind of stuff. How fast is that? in some instances, under 36 hours from fully fleshed to completely skeletonized and ripped apart and, and no. scattered away. Oh yeah, a full pig, a full pig of 200-pound pig. Wow, 36 hours. Yeah. So does do, do people know how many people are dying in the desert? We have a count from bodies that are recovered by hikers and humanitarian groups, but I think it grossly underestimates the number of actual deaths. So we're we're doing an exhibition right now, a global exhibition called Hostile Terrain 94 that will launch in May in 150 locations around the globe, and it's focused on migrant death. And the exhibition is a giant wall map of Arizona with about 3,200 handwritten toe tags for deceased people. So 3,200 is the working number. By the time we launch in May, it'll probably be around 3,400. But that's just for Arizona, and I, would, I think you could safely double that number for just Arizona alone. Oh, my God. And over 1,200 of those bodies are unidentified, so just fragments of, of bone.
0: Oh,
1: how I don't you know decompress. how you decompress. Yeah, this is so uh, intense. Yeah,
2: I'm worried about you. Yeah. We're worried. I was really excited for yeah. you and all your accomplishments, and now I'm worried about you. Uh, you know, I, I used to say that beer helped, uh-huh. um, and it really doesn't. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it, no. Like you want it to, but it, it it stops working after a while. Yeah. But you know, I think for us, it's a lot of talk therapy, checking in with folks, and much of this project, I mean, at least the, the forensic stuff, came out of. I encountered the body of a 31-year-old mother of three from Ecuador in the Arizona desert in 2012, a woman named Maricela Zagui-Puyas. She'd only been dead like four or five days, and it was a, just a, a devastating kind of encounter. Um, and then I ended up figuring out who she was through the help of a medical examiner in, in Tucson and a center called the Colibri Center for Human Rights. And then I trace her story back to Ecuador. I meet her family, her kids. I go to New York and meet her family there. And it's kind of her story that really kind of inspires me to kind of keep going and to think okay you know this is rough work it's emotionally difficult but at the same time I'm incredibly privileged to do this I get paid to do this for a living and I chose to do this and so I've got to find ways for it to be productive and but then also to practice kind of self-care but I think I think about her a lot in terms of why this project needs to keep going and and why I've got to be better at both taking care of myself but then also making sure that you know that the work is getting out there
0: yeah, because I have to imagine, A, you're, you're in a hostile environment yourself. It's not like you're uh, going back to the Four Seasons, hopping in the bathtub and yeah. watching um, some, I don't know, Tour de France or something. <laughs> Why would I be watching the I Tour I have no de idea. Sometimes you get in the bathtub and just, you'll watch whatever's on and sometimes it's the Tour de France. But, you know, you you yourself are in an unforgiving situation, and then you're just kind of left with that nightly, and I think that that has to be crazy challenging.
2: Yeah. You know, during the course of this project, I mean, another person in my book I write about is um, this woman, Marisela's 15-year-old cousin, who disappears in the desert. And so I end up spending all this time with his family and working with parents of people who've lost a son and have never... Recovered him. This project was happening as the, right around the time that my wife gave birth to our first kid, and so becoming a dad during all of this, all of this really changed my whole perspective on this stuff. And it, I think, it both made me feel more aware about how I was feeling about this stuff, but then also, you know, incredibly inspiring to just kind of keep keep going.
0: I was going to ask that. Yeah, having had a child has to have like really, because as much as you intellectually understand, of course, people care about their children and stuff until you have. A child, and then you imagine them separated from you. Yeah. Just immediately you're like, I'm so scared for them. Yeah. They depend on me so much. And to be separated, I just can't imagine anything more horrific for them. So it just, you can know it intellectually, but then you you have the emotional component of being able to truly understand what kind of pain that yeah. would be. I have to imagine it, yeah, it changed your whole experience. I mean, the most brutal
2: thing I've ever, you know, and I've, I've this project, you know, with the smuggling project that I'm writing a book about now. One of the main people he was murdered by someone right right in the middle of field work and that was so devastating. And there's been other stuff that's happened that's been really challenging and and, and painful. But nothing compares to like interviewing a mom and a dad about their son who has disappeared, yeah. and and the, and the everyday struggles about if they're ever going to know what happened to him. I mean, just I mean, and when I give like talks about the book, I mean, I hate giving talks about the first book because that's kind of how it ends. And I always kind of end the talk with. This quote from from the dad talking about, you know, what life like is now in this perpetual state of grief and limbo, you know, looking for his missing son, and it just breaks my heart every single time. And so, I, and that's just like from as from an from an outside perspective, yeah. I, can't, I cannot even begin to imagine what that daily existence is like.
0: And what now with the kids in cages? How many? My wife's very involved in this. How many kids are separated? It's thousands. Thousands, right? Yeah. It, it would appear, at least, that they had no intention of keeping track of anyone. I mean, they're just when you look at what level of attention was given to just keeping track of everyone, it doesn't seem that there was any.
2: No, and, and I don't, I mean, part of it's just incompetence. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, federal agency that just does not kind of thinking into the future, just doing stuff kind of willy-nilly. But then, you know, you have to wonder, too, if part of the negligence is just part of this, this brutality of the this, this system that's in place.
0: Do you have any empathy for those people that are doing that job? Cause I only mention this because I was watching some special on it, and they were following a border patrol officer, and he was responding to a call that I think was on the like Rio Grande or something. So he's driving down this dirt road and he's just passing people after, you know, person after person, sometimes families and they're they're knocking on his window and they want water, and you start realizing quickly like, Well, this guy can't stop and pick everyone up. Like he's responding to this call down here and he's going to pass like six families on the way that he knows just the vehicle's not going to hold this many people. What a fucking terrible job. Like I I can only imagine what mechanisms you have to enact for that, not to kill you to pass six families on your way to pick up some other things. So did you, is it possible for you to have empathy
2: for the people that are on that side of it? Sure. I mean, I've worked with the Border Patrol off and on for many years. And people don't really know that over 50% of agents are Latino. Uh-huh. And so you've got a lot of people who are sort of struggling with their own identity in the context of you know policing people who look just like them. And a lot of the agents that I've talked to have said things like, I joined the Border Patrol after 9-11 because I wanted to fight terrorism. Yeah. And now I end up, I'm just chasing dirt farmers from Oaxaca across the desert. That wasn't really what I signed up for. Uh-huh. And so I think there were a lot of people who had been sold that. I mean, and around after 2001, the federal government starts conflating terrorism with immigration yeah. and putting those two things together. And so you have a lot of agents who I think really bought into that and then, you know, come to find out that, you know, we've never caught a terrorist coming across the Southern border ever. Not one, not one, but you have these agents who are, you know, I think a lot of them are, are, are struggling with, with these kind of internal conflicts. I mean, there are some that, that I've met who I thought were going to kill me who were, I mean, you know, gun in my face kind of stuff, just, Aggressive um, sorts of people, but I think there's a lot of other folks that I've come to know who are complicated creatures Have you
0: been mistaken for someone walking? Yeah, yeah,
2: I've had that happen. I've had people think I was a smuggler get pulled over for various reasons Yeah, you look way
0: more like a smuggler to me (laughs) than a farmer. Yeah, yeah (laughs) If I just had to quickly thin slice and profile you I'd be like deported gangbanger. This guy loves metal Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) this guy's the (laughs) same MS-13 for sure. Yeah, look at him (laughs) Okay Now, so you're kind of, I wonder, at some point, do you foresee, like, the archaeological component fading away as you take more of a, like, policy advisement role? Or do they always, like, I'm wondering how, from when you set out on this project till now, how it has evolved
2: and where you see it going. I don't do a lot of policy work because people don't like taking advice from anthropologists. Why not? Because we, I think we make everything way too complicated. Because right? <laughs> someone asks you a simple question, like you know, you ask me this immigration question, and I'm like, I don't. I could give you like a, a forty-two bullet point kind of response to this. Yeah. And policymakers are like, well, that doesn't.
0: Yeah, I need a, I need yeah. a headline, buddy. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind bite. of,
2: I avoid a lot of the policy stuff. But as the project has evolved, I mean, it, it really is a lot more about public outreach. I'm committed to, to training students to to do research on this kind of stuff. You know, we're currently trying to start a center at UCLA that will basically work with first-generation college students to do work around these issues and then put them out into the world to do, you know, various research projects. Uh, but then also trying to translate all of that for for different publics.
0: So the, with the new project that's going to go live globally, is the goal to get more people both interested and then also, like, volunteering?
2: Should people be helping people in the desert? Like, what what would... So this project, the Hostile Terrain, we send them an exhibition kit that's 3,200 toe tags and all the information that needs to go on those toe tags. And then they have to mobilize, you know, 100, 500 people to make these exhibitions. And so for me, there's something that happens. Rather than going to an exhibition space and seeing a wall of 3,000 handwritten toe tags, what happens if we ask you to come and spend half an hour filling up the, the names of the dead and that information and then mounting on this wall. We want people to connect with this issue in a kind of more personal way through that that experience. Yeah, And we hope that it's through that and then they will get a, a different kind of take on this whole thing and then decide what to do with that information.
0: It, it, but let's say someone's listening to you right now and they're like, yeah, I would like to be involved. What are the things that someone could do to help this situation?
2: You know, I think just getting more educated, just learning about stuff. I mean, there are organizations that you can Support you can donate to that are doing various kinds of things, but they can vote um, You know, they can start with a, with local level kind of politics um, But then also finding ways to support immigrants in their community, right? There's no community in the United States that doesn't have immigrants in it and so figuring out ways to, to support folks I think um, at that level is Maybe what most people can can actually do.
0: Yeah I'm just now remembering I had a LA geography class here at UCLA where they talked about that 50% of all second generation Mexicans were middle class and that they are very much like the best embodiment of Mm -hmm. the American dream. If you look at the data, like it's not at all in any way some kind of big drain or that it's generally works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're talking about something that frustrated me ultimately with majoring in anthropology. I'm so sorry. But I'm going to say the thing that I found at the end of four years to be frustrating was you learned about all these people, you're told this concept of cultural relativity, and I definitely see the merits of cultural relativity, which is you really can't learn about anybody if you start with some judgment, or your goal is to make a judgment, or some moral claim on what's happening, that that clouds your ability to actually understand what forces are causing, say, infanticide in Inuits, right? That's like our most provocative thing we like to study in an intro-anthro class. But at the end of the whole thing, I thought, okay, here's this vast knowledge, and now what? What is the application of it? Like, I understood the purpose, but I have to say at some point, I was like, no. Um, female circumcision, no. <laughs> you know, I, I understand now all the elements that are leading to this thing. I think I, lear- I put away my judgment long enough to understand why it's happening, but I can pretty much conclude now it is misogyny at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I was frustrated with the application of anthropology. Is that still the case or, or did I misunderstand how how it was applied?
2: Well, I think for a long time you know there we're, we were making knowledge for the sake of making knowledge, and then it just lives in, in the ivory tower kind of thing yeah, right? and anthropology I think is making this shift now towards being more public and more engaged and basically figuring, look the world's on fire, we're experts in a lot of different things, whether it's immigration, race, gender and why are we not the people on CNN talking about these things? why are we not you know um, the, the public voice for these kinds of causes and I think people now are starting to really appreciate that in a, a much kind of deeper way and yeah. so you know how do I take my work? out of a journal article and put it into some other context so that people can actually learn something and be able to appreciate what what it is anthropologists do, but then also take that knowledge then and, and then go out and, and try to make a difference. Yeah. In the weaponize world. it in yeah. a good
0: way in some, yeah. in some way. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you a provocative question. I think I'm, I'm, I'm starting to realize I've overreacted on an issue that makes the rounds, and it's about universities. I think I, I'm one of these people that probably overreacted. It's like, oh, well, universities have gone to shit. You can't even you know have debate now. It has to be one approved message, and that's that. Am I inflating that? You've now spent, I don't know, the last 10 years educating at three different colleges, lecturing at UW, and then U of M, and then now here. Has there been a change since we went to college, or is it inflated?
2: You mean in terms of like censorship? Yeah. I've never really experienced it. I mean, the, the censorship thing, but I think I have experienced the the pushback about, you know, here's this liberal brown professor who's going on some tirade about politics. Uh-huh. Um, I, mean, I got that a lot at the University of Michigan. I taught the 101 course there for many years, just four hundred and fifty mostly non-majors who were taking it for a general ed requirement. To see boobs and yeah. some photos. And, yeah, and, and and then they're like, well, and they show up, and, and then they're like, well, he's just showing videos of, like, the police shooting civilian, You know, like, he's, he's like, this is not fun. Um, and me being like, this is what the world looks like. Um, and, you know, a lot of students in that class pushing back and being like, this person's getting on his high horse about politics. And I'm like, human rights for me is not a partisan issue. Like, if if there are injustices in the world, I want you to understand that and think about it anthropologically. And so I I was getting pushback from students there about, you know, they just didn't like the flavor of the anthropology that I was pitching. It wasn't Indiana Jones, you know, it was, you know, Trayvon Martin. Right. And, And that was not sitting well with a lot of folks. So what was your anthropological take on Trayvon Martin? Well, just getting people to think about... The different kinds of experiences that certain people have about the world, yeah. and like, and how you know, I, I do this. I show students like a video with black parents talking to their kids about the police. You know, and, and as part of like, this is how culture is learned and shared. And these are conversations that have to happen in, in a household about what the world looks like. And yeah. students just being really uncomfortable with some of that stuff. I I, I came here, yeah, to see boobs, you know, and, and other stuff. And and this yeah. is a real this is a real bummer.
0: Yeah. Maybe the extended necks or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And,
2: and I'm like, if, like I tell them in the beginning, like that's not what you're gonna get here. Right. Um, but then they're like, well, I'm stuck. This is a GE. You know, it's kind of an easy, it's kind of an easy course. Like <laughs> I gotta show up and listen to this like rambling, yeah. you know, left leaning um, professor kind of thing. <laughs> you know, I'm like, tough shit, man. Uh uh-huh.
0: Was there any pressure from upstairs? Like, did students complain, and then you were you were pulled aside and said like, hey, lighten up a little bit?
2: No. Yes. Okay, so I'm probably
0: yeah. overreacting. Everything's fine and discourse is still encouraged in academia and everything's good.
2: I think for the most part. Okay, yeah. good.
0: That makes me feel better. I live in a bubble though too, so Yeah, yeah. yeah. You told me you're barely here, right? Yeah yeah, so, yeah, 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 that's great. <laughs> Stay tuned for more live show after this exciting commercial break. We are supported by Walmart Plus. Walmart plus is the membership that helps you save on things you expect plus things you don't like free delivery from your store with no markups so you can enjoy some guilt free couch time or enjoy an extra hour in bed or how about this save on gas while you drive the kids to soccer practice or hey how about a Paramount Plus subscription included so you can take that movie night up a notch? With Walmart Plus, you save on all this plus so much more. Start a free 30-day trial at www.walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com plus for details. Start a free 30-day trial at www.walmartplus.com. We are supported by Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig inspires people of all ages to jump through life and its muddy puddles with enthusiasm. The relatable stories, oinks, and giggles have made her preschooler's first best friend, helping them navigate everyday life with unabashed exuberance. And now you can discover new playtime adventures with your little ones. Jump into spring and hunt for muddy puddles in Peppa's Caravan Playset. Hit the road for endless adventures and have heaps of fun with Peppa's whole family. Oinks and giggles are guaranteed. Peppa Pig, inspiring kids' confidence since 2004. Peppa Pig is a trademark of Hasbro, created by Mark Baker and Neville Astley. Okay, now I wanted to talk to you about something that we probably could all relate to, which is we live in a very unique time period where since i don't know 95 onward for 25 years the archaeological record exists in such detail where we're uploading every bit of information about ourselves onto the internet it will live forever and i want to hear your thoughts on what a phenomena that like there's no mystery anymore We're seeing a lot of people that are being tried for crimes that happened in 1990, per se. And I think it's really interesting that it used to be, let's say that this technology existed in the 50s, that this record had been accumulating since the 50s. We would very easily be able to go online and see some gentleman, probably four drinks in, in front of a hospital, smoking a cigarette, putting a newborn into the back of a car with no seatbelts, and then driving them home. And you would go, this is alarming. Yeah. What we tend to do in anthropology is we, we try to look at like, oh, what's the culture of that situation? What is the totality of that environment and that era and that time in space? But now we're in this interesting position where we can witness people real time doing things from different eras. Sure. We know what's culturally right and wrong now. We're clear on that. And then we're observing people do things that is blatantly terrible today, yet it wasn't terrible then. Sure. It's very
2: complicated, no? I will say that I'm glad that the internet really wasn't around when we were in college. Oh, <laughs> truthfully. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we wouldn't, be, be, career si- we wouldn't be sitting up here. <laughs> that's right, um, that's right. I always think about it this way. Anything I'm saying now or doing right now is gonna look so stupid in 20, 50 years. And yeah. so all I can do is try to do the best that I can in this moment and know that I will be judged by history later on. I guess it depends on what you t- I mean, there's some things that I can look back on well, and go, those were the days. And then other stuff, you're like, that shit was problematic then and it's problematic now. 100%. Uh, but the bottom line is now it can be
0: observed. It just couldn't be observed. Yeah. And now it's like... Uh, you mean people
2: doing it like right now in real time?
0: No, no. Like oh. someone finding a photo of somebody in 1988. The very famous yeah. case cur- that just happened recently was like someone in blackface, oh, yeah. which of, I'm, let me be very clear, I'm against blackface. Yeah. You know, you start going back far enough and you're like, oh, well, that was on television at one point. Yeah. That was in popular movies at one point. There's... There's all this disturbing stuff that we have to kind of confront that sure. like, and I'm just not sure if any of us know where we draw those lines. I mean, there's a, there is an archaeological view of it, sure. which is like, oh, I'm uncovering stuff and it's from a bygone era, but it's the person still alive. That's interesting.
2: Well, I think I judge those instances on how does that person react to it right now? i like, oh it wasn't ah. me. You know, the kind of like shaggy thing. Like, oh, it's not, you know, and they're like, there's like six ah. different yes, groups, it was. You know, it, yeah. <laughs> and no, I'm thinking I'm like Boom Bass, like, it wasn't me. Like, oh yeah. <laughs>
0: that's shaggy.
2: <laughs>
0: I was right there though yeah. to do Scooby for you if you needed it. <laughs> Rorraggie? You're in blackface. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Okay, it wasn't me. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it, but it's part of like, you know, are people owning that stuff? Yeah. Or, or are, they, are they, you know, getting really defensive about things that you shouldn't be defensive about? You should just be like, yeah, I'm a fucking idiot. Yeah. I'm sorry. You yeah, know? Yeah.
0: yeah. Now, as I started with the punk rock thing, because I do believe that we are kind of drawn to the, there, there's some kind of anti establishment punk rock vibe to anthropology, which oh, I sure. fucking love. It, d- does it ever boggle you that, like, here you and I are sitting? We're the fucking establishment. We're four. I'm 45. You're what? 42. Yep. 42. You're a professor at a, a world-renowned college. I'm on TV telling people what dishwashers to buy. <laughs> I hope you'll buy Samsungs. <laughs> How weird is that? Yeah. No, completely. I'm confronted by the fact of, like, God, I want to be able to talk to who I was at 20, and I know damn well they wouldn't listen. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's just a very interesting place to find yourself. When you're teaching kids, do you feel a chasm, or do you feel very much like I do? Like, I still feel like I'm 20, delusionally
2: so. Oh, I'm totally delusional about Uh the whole thing. Like, and I'm like, I, I think that I'm in my 20s. And uh, uh-huh. and of course, I, my cultural references are all off. I mean, I've like- Shaggy. Shaggy. But yeah, I mean, yeah, they're yeah. just like- like. And oh, then uh, I went even yeah. further back with oh, Scooby-Doo. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, I will say that the one thing about anthropology, and, I, and I'm, I'm teaching a class right now called the Anthropology of LA, which I hope you'll come and- Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I would and, love yeah, to. And talk to these kids. Yeah. You know, I tell them like, look, I was a super fuck up weirdo, and anthropology is this tribe that collects weirdos, and yeah. um, I, so I think on, on some level I can connect with them in that sense. And I tell them, you know, look, I used to, I was a dropout, you know, um, total screw up in all kinds of different ways. So I think I'm really open about my past. I hope as a way to connect with them, even though there's this age this age gap. Yeah, but they can maybe they can see themselves a little bit in me, like the f- in the future. I, that's what I want them to be able to see. And then I definitely see myself in a lot of those students.
0: Yeah. Now. To me, like when I went, this will piss off a lot of students here currently, but when I went, it was 3800 bucks for the year. <laughs> I didn't live on campus, $3,800. bucks. is not it just getting so unattainable for everyone? But it, it does seem that the, the line is going like this, right? It's just oh, like, yeah. w- what's the end and how does it get wrangled? As an, as an archaeologist yeah. who studies migration, please tell me how to drop the price of <laughs> college <laughs> tuition.
2: I think, you know, some institutions are, are committed to financial aid, to getting, you know, they recognize that the students that they want to get can't afford it, and so they're trying to find ways to do that. And then there are the students who will pay all this money that then can oftentimes, you know, fuel some of these other, other programs.
1: I have a solution.
2: What's your solution? Because
1: I went to school in Georgia, and there was a, yes, I was waiting for some claps. It's good school. Not It's not UCLA, but it's yeah. a good
0: school. Anyways, go ahead.
1: Um There's a HOPE scholarship program there that is paid for by the state lottery. So if you have a certain GPA or over, you get free tuition, which is what I got.
0: Even though your parents were loaded.
1: Well, even though. (laughs) Even though. Yeah, so states can start doing programs like that to make college cheaper for people.
0: Okay, well, I guess my last curiosity is if I didn't get as lucky as I got and got to do this thing, I love comedy and yeah. chatting to people and all this wonderful stuff. I Really, the, the only other lifestyle I totally fantasize about is yours. Like, I think just never leaving the world of academia sounds heavenly. I, I was never happier than just coming here four days a week and having someone explain something to me like I was five. I loved it. <laughs> is the job what you had thought it was going to be? Is it better? Is it worse? Uh, it, it was worse. Yeah. Let me just fill in. That pause only means one thing.
2: Post tenure, you know, a different kind of work. You know, so you become, you, you know, you're just involved with a lot more service. I, you know, should have gotten a PhD in email. Uh-huh. I think that that's really what I, what I spend a lot of my time doing. Uh-huh. Um, but at the same time, you know, the flexibility, I can study whatever the hell I want. I can get money to go to some new place and think about some new idea. Yeah. I love that, and I love working with students. You know, really mentoring students, um, seeing them develop for me is a super fulfilling thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's migration issues everywhere, right? All over the globe. Is there anything that you're doing here that is applicable to other areas? And is there any kind of synthesis between uh, other problem areas and the work you're doing?
2: Well, with the show Hostile Terrain 94, you know, we're in 150 locations around the globe. And we're doing a whole bunch of shows in the Mediterranean, in Europe, in Africa, and working with refugees and migrants in those locations to build this wall map of Arizona deaths as a way to kind of stand in solidarity with migrants around the globe. And so we're, we're trying to find ways to, to branch out so that we're connecting with the, with this issue. Because I mean, for me, America, we, we, we tend to think about immigration as like our problem kind of thing, you yeah. know? And it's like, well, this is a global crisis. And it's only getting worse. And we need to see that that all the stuff that's happening, you know, climate change as a driving force in migration that's happening in, in Latin America, in Africa. How
0: so? Like water sources are yeah, drying droughts up or droughts. you know, um,
2: more extreme weather. So typhoons, hurricanes. We're starting to see increases in these like climate catastrophes that then force people to have to out-migrate. I and mean, this has been going on for decades already. Hurricane Mitch in Honduras devastates Honduras in the late 90s and people have to out-migrate to the United States and it's only happening now on a a higher level. Yeah.
0: Well, look, it's mind-blowing to me that you've become a really valued member of our society. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Truthfully. I'm sure on some level you think the same about me. Yeah. Do you want to tell them the motorcycle? (laughs) Before we go, do you want to regale them with our motorcycle experience? Go ahead. The Lakers won the championship. T- 90-
2: 2000.
0: 2000. We were celebrating <laughs> dangerously.
2: <laughs> Dax likes to drive fast all the time, but we decide... Let's do some motorcycling. Yeah, down like Santa Monica Boulevard at like 3 o'clock in the morning. Sure. I remember like we're going like 90 miles, 100 miles an hour.
0: We were probably obeying the post speed limit, yeah. but yeah, we, yeah. Were, we were on a motorcycle. <laughs>
2: And I remember just I think I was just whispering in your ear, like, can't this thing go any faster? <laughs> Challenge accepted. And so cop sees us, and then we're like, oh shit, there's a cop behind us. And I said, Don't worry. I know exactly where we are. I know Long Beach like the back of my hand. I'm like,
0: we're except, at Marina Del Rey. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> I'm like, go left and then go right and then make another left. And so we're like down these alleys, and this cop is chasing us and then I'm like oh this is our getaway right well, here what's the
0: statue of limitations on this type of thing
2: hopefully 20 years and we turn this corner where I think we're gonna like be free and clear and it's just a garage door and so we we slow down and crash like throw the bike run. like Scooby Doo behind a <laughs> yeah. bush like get behind the bush and so we go behind this bush we're hiding behind this giant bush and of course the bush is only like three feet tall so you can see Dax's head over the bush Uh I'm hunched down, we both have these helmets on. <laughs> and this cop pulls up and puts the lights on us and he's just like on his microphone like, I can see you <laughs> in, behind the bushes. I can like, come out from oh behind the bushes. Oh. And so we like kind of walk, come out from behind the bushes. <laughs> and this cop is like, what the fuck are you guys doing? <laughs> and Dax goes, officer, I didn't really know how fast I was going, it was a total mistake. I drive for a living, so my license is really important, you know, and I'll never do it again. And I just turned to this cop, and I said, look, the Lakers haven't won a championship since 1988. (laughs) (laughs) They won tonight, and we are celebrating, and we got really carried away, and I'm so sorry. (laughs) And the guy looks at us and is like, "You guys are fucking idiots.
1: <laughs>
2: Get on your busted bike and go home."
1: Wow! And
2: so we just yeah. walked, and through. we made it, and <laughs> we're here. You, did it. you uh, did it.
0: Don't do what we did, but do what Jason yeah. does. Uh, Jason Delion, I'm so impressed with what you've dedicated your life to, and I think you're so helpful. So you did it. UCLA, thank you guys so much. I said it when I did the commencement speech, but I started crying while I was trying to say it. So I'll attempt it again here. There's nothing in my life I feel prouder about than having gone to this school. So thank you, guys. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. Did you ever drink Jolt
1: cola? Joel Cola.
0: Yeah, Jolt Cola. (laughs) Oh,
1: Jolt. Yeah. Um, No. Too young. Uh, Yeah, that was before my time. I
0: feel like I was in junior high, Jolt hit the scene. It was like all the caffeine and twice the sugar or something. It had some crazy like (laughs) declaration in the product title. (laughs)
1: And that was a sell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know. Things have changed. Young
0: people were like, yeah. Well, I don't know. This whole um, energy drink thing seems to be the same thing. Like too much energy. (laughs)
1: That's true, but nobody wants sugar now. Like, you know, oh that's, that's not great. That's
0: true. Maybe it was all the sugar and twice the caffeine. Oh, some, boy. Some, they, did, they did a little dance with, hey, Google, what was Jolt's cola slogan?
1: All the sugar and twice the caffeine. Oh! oh. oh wow. Yeah. It's so nice when she, like, confirms.
0: Yes, <laughs> it is. It feels great.
1: <laughs> She's so cute today. Oh,
0: she really is. I just love that she's having an affair with that microphone.
1: Yeah. Well, they're not having an affair. They can be having a real relationship. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. They're in a committed relationship.
1: Yeah, they're committed.
0: They are. Although, I mean, that they... same microphone <laughs> plays patty cake with you all the time.
1: Well, but I'm not interested in that microphone. Mm. So it's
0: all Plutonic.
1: Yeah, that's right. But, I would never encroach on her.
0: <laughs> no, no. She's so defenseless. She's kind of like eye packs. <laughs> I am the eye. I- yes. I'm yeah, gonna if I a- sat
1: on her, I would feel sad. Wouldn't you?
0: Because she's so defenseless.
1: Yeah. Poor girl.
0: Mm, poor little girl. <laughs> hey, Google. Are you defenseless?
1: Huh. I can't tell. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, I like that she it's wasn't humble. too proud. Mm-hmm, you
0: know? mm-hmm. um, Jason Deleon. This is what I was thinking about when I was reading about him. He has an accent over one of the letters in his name, in the Leon part, like maybe over the E or the O. Oh, okay. And I was- The Leon. How, how do people do, how do you put an accent on things when you're texting or- No,
1: if you hold down the letter, well, yeah. on iPhones, look, uh, I don't know how Samsungs work, yeah, but you wouldn't. if you hold down on the letter, all of them pop up and you can
0: click oh, it. Oh. Yeah. On any letter?
1: Uh-huh. Well, on the letters that have them, like N E. Are
0: there some letters that you can't put an accent on? Like a T?
1: Like a W maybe?
0: Yeah, I've never seen a fucking accent on a W.
1: Yeah, there's nothing when I click W or M. But look at E. Look what pops up when I do E. A
0: smorgasbord. So many. mm, Okay. Well, thank you. I learned something today.
1: (laughs) You're welcome. Another memory lane Mm, for you.
0: Absolutely.
1: Fun. I love that you guys were fuck-ups and now (laughs) you're not that that
0: was probably my favorite takeaway as well yeah it's just like yeah if there had been a poll in the middle of class they'd have been like these two aren't gonna make it (laughs) like even to graduation much less in life.
1: it's inspiring
0: i can't put too fine a point on how much he drank in college really oh yeah i think he drank more than i did
1: well he said it i think he was like laughing but also seemed serious (laughs) They were like i can't be around you
0: uh, no, 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 well... I
1: think he was saying I think that there were, you said that.
0: There were moments where I was like, I can't go with you guys to the bar. Like, I can be yeah. friends, but I can't, although there was very little recreational activity with him when we were friends that didn't involve drinking, so... Right. Yeah, there probably was. Yeah, and I just thought, it's weird, as I said on stage, it was weird to me that he had zero concern about it. Yeah. And, and it improved to be an issue for him.
1: Yeah. Well, some people are addicts. That's right. <laughs>
0: Even though, like, if you just looked at his consumption, you probably would have concluded that he was an addict. I don't think he was.
1: Well, this has come up in our lives with people around us. Mm-hmm. I think I think there is a distinction between somebody who's an, an addict yeah. and has truly no control yep. over somebody who is choosing to be out of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they might choose that a lot of days. And so from the outside, it looks the same, but they still are in control yeah. of it, you know?
0: Yep, yeah.
1: And I don't think you are.
0: No, 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 yeah. no, no, no.
1: But it's Since I have
0: a- one drink, the playbook is out the window. And I had to prove that to myself a th- over a thousand times. Like I know I'm smart enough to have a good enough fucking plan. I'm going to have two drinks, and then I'm going to stand up and leave there. Yeah. And just could not do that.
1: Even... Someone who's not an addict, that can be hard. Once you're in it.
0: Right, because you have a different brain working. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's
1: something else happening. You're having fun.
0: Well, your frontal lobe, it gets diminished. Yeah. So your ability to, to weigh the future versus the present is, gets diminished.
1: Yeah. Can I tell you something Yeah. you might not like? Oh. or I don't know if you will. But when you had toe surgery. Oh, okay. And I was with you for a couple days during that time. So... I was the one who was in charge of administering your medicine yes. and giving you your painkiller. Yeah. And it was the first time I really saw... <laughs> I mean, no, like at 2 o'clock on the dot, Yeah, you'd be like, okay, it's time. Yep. And we'd be doing stuff. We'd be like watching TV or yeah. in the middle of a conversation. You were occupied, but you were always thinking about it.
0: Oh, uh-huh. yes. Yes. And it it's was, like, worse. on the
1: dot.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. And
1: I it scared me.
0: In many ways, because guys share about it all the time in meetings, like, you have surgery and you need pain pills. And the consistent kind of takeaway is, like, it'd probably be easier without them in many ways because you are so preoccupied with it, or I am so preoccupied with yeah. it, uh, which is why I don't get the medicine and you or Kristen get the medicine. That it there's no enjoyment of it because you're just like oh I can't have the amount I want which mm-hmm, is all of them mm-hmm. and so it's almost whatever whatever pain it's treating which it does uh, coupled with this anxiety about not being able to do it the way you want to so that's its own pain and it's almost probably neutral
1: yeah <laughs>
0: did you think in your head oh gross no
1: oh. I thought. <laughs> I just thought, wow, this is so real, and I think I—I I mean, I already there were a few other instances in life that I had that thought mm-hmm. about you, and uh, just about addiction in general, and it's moments like that that I know I'm not.
0: Yeah, yeah, because
1: I—I—I I don't have that. I don't have this thing, this preoccupation. Yes. With substances, and so. Uh, even though I I like alcohol, but it's it doesn't um, control me.
0: Yeah, you're not someplace, and then we're going to go somewhere else. Your first thought isn't, is there more alcohol there? No. In my... I wouldn't even leave a place that had alcohol unless I knew where we were going was going to have the same amount yeah. or more. I would never do it. Yeah. It'd be, it's the first thing I would think about. Not like, oh, that'll be fun over there, or this or that. It's just like will they have yeah. alcohol there?
1: Yeah, it's, it's. Um, I mean, I guess that's a little bit hard, because if I'm already drinking, let's say I was at a bar or something and I had a couple drinks and I was liking it. Feeling nice. And then I wanted to go, we were going to like Ryan and Amy's, I might be like, should we get wine on the way? Like, mm-hmm. I, I would have some element of that. Mm-hmm. Again, the line is so blurry as to when it transitions into a true
0: Obsession, Obs-
1: yeah, obsession and problem, yeah. and
0: yeah. The times oh. I've had painkillers in sobriety, there is no moment in that where I'm not thinking about the painkillers. Even if I'm yeah. talking to you and I'm super distracted by something, I'm way more conscious of like when the next one's coming I know. than anything else. You know,
1: it scares me. It scares me. <laughs> It just does. It's scary. And I think if if other people are around addicts, it's scary. Like Mm -hmm. there's a very real fear that you carry. And it's sort of back to the episode we talked about earlier where, you know, last week or whatever, the last episode we did about drinking around addicts or smoking around addicts or Uh whatever. I think part of it is why would you do that? Because already you're living with fear that that person is going to wreck their life and yours, but theirs, and you care about their life so much. Yeah. it's inten- It can be intense.
0: I'm trying to think if I ever partied with someone that scared me. Like, I've gone and ri- ridden motorcycles with people, and it scares me, and I don't enjoy riding with them because I'm nervous they're going to crash and die. Yeah. And so I, can- I don't want to do it, and it's yeah. scary. But I'm trying to think if I've ever partied with anyone where I was like, oh, this person's going to die.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I I... I don't think I've had that feeling ever.
1: Okay, so you said a whole thing about Pacific Islanders, rowing. Oh, yeah,
0: that the people that got to Tonga and Samoa had rowed from, I said the Philippines because it was convenient, but I think it was Malaysia is what I really learned.
1: Right, but then they said in the moment that wasn't true. Somebody shouted that out.
0: Someone did, yeah, but I don't.
1: And I couldn't find it. I was more
0: happy that there was just a total look of puzzlement on Jason's face, who's a professor <laughs> in anthropology. So it wasn't like he said, like, no, that's wrong because it's this. It, I was just relieved, like, oh, I don't think he knows.
1: If it was something that everyone in anthropology knew, he would definitely know. You'd have
0: to be in whatever class that was talking about migration, you know, migrating populations. Well,
1: he would definitely know about that.
0: Well, in, in South and Latin America. But he probably's
1: I mean. done a lot. I mean, he's been in all the classes.
0: Yeah, but he had no theory on how the Tongans got there.
1: Yeah, but I think having no theory is probably better than having a made up theory. No, but
0: am I, it's not <laughs> made up. I learned that. You think I just made that up? I
1: think you're confused. Yeah, I think you're confused. Mm, okay. I know. Okay.
0: Mm. No, I a thousand percent still believe what I learned. All
1: right. Well, you can find it out. And You'd bring have to it explain back.
0: why they're inordinately larger than everyone else in another way.
1: All right. Find out and come bring your old textbook and return.
0: Okay. okay. It does make me think of. We talked about the thought experiment. Was there one other thing that someone just.
1: No, but well, people were mad at me for Nixon because Nixon did not get impeached.
0: Okay, right. He resigned. And I said he did. Right.
1: So he did resign. I knew he resigned, but I thought he resigned after he got impeached, before Mm. he got
0: convicted by the Senate. Correct. Okay. But
1: really, it was before.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, we cleared that up. Okay,
1: that's clear. Okay, you said California is the fifth biggest economy in the world, it's the sixth.
0: Because Mayor Garcetti said that L.A. in itself, just L.A. was the sixth biggest.
1: California, yeah, California now has the world's fifth largest economy. That was CBS News 2018. This one that pops up, which is on Wikipedia, Economy of California. The economy of California is the largest in the United States. boasting If California were a sovereign nation 2020, so Mm. that's new, it would rank as the world's sixth largest economy. Ahead of the UK and behind India. Okay. That's what it says here. Okay, so some conflicting information. Fifth, so, yeah. or, sixth, big, fifth big, or sixth.
0: Big economy. Big economy.
1: Really big. I'm proud of it. Me too. That's all. That was it? Yeah, not very many facts with dear old Jason.
0: Interesting, considering it was an ac- expert.
1: Yeah, I know. That's the way it works with these experts. But I love what he's doing. Me too. He was really cool.
0: Th- I mean... I was aware of what he was doing. I was not aware of how dark it is.
1: Yeah. Like, of course look, it is. Trying
0: to figure out what who, 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 the identity of this dead body mm-hmm. and children and the whole thing. Yeah, I mean,
1: parents who are missing children and
0: the whole endeavor is just suffering. That's what yeah. he's studying. He's studying the suffering of millions yeah. of people. Yeah, I know. Ooh, that's rough. It is. I'm but I'm glad does somebody that. does it. Yeah. yeah. That's how I always feel when I'm like visiting someone in the hospital, the nurses. I'm like, oh my God, the job. It's like there's so much poop and pee and blood I know. And, oh, and just, the, just what, the people make a grossest, mess of those beds.
1: Yeah. And
0: they have like this great attitude and they're fucking yeah. doing it. I'm always overwhelmed with like, what a job. I'm so grateful there are people that are up for that.
1: Do you think we could learn that mentality or you're born with it?
0: Whew man. I, I mean I would really need to be putting food on the table for my kids to work yeah. there or in like a geriatric facility.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean just dealing with other humans poop is uh it's rough. I'm just so <laughs> grateful some people are up I for know. it.
1: I agree. God. Yeah. Some
0: people don't seem to care. Like Carly's a little that way. My sister like yeah. Zits and stuff. She'll watch these zip popping videos. Yeah,
1: people really like those. But that's like, they're getting a weird satisfaction like out a of it. Kink. Yeah, I don't think that's uh. the same as like the poop and puke cleaning.
0: Okay. PMP, <laughs> the, P, the three P's. <laughs> <laughs> Piddle, poo <poopoo>, poo, and puke. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I love you. And I love, love Jason you. Dillian I'm so happy that he's um, so successful in, in um, educating young minds. What a great person to do that. I love that. Yeah. All right. Love you.
1: Bye we